You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The new world of thinking is how do we measure security awareness on a proactive basis instead of a reactive basis? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Zach Schuler from Ningio. We're going to be talking about measuring the effectiveness of security awareness training. All right, Joe, let's uh, go ahead and jump right into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story comes from KGO all the way out in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, It is a story about a woman named Paige Pollock, who is a school nurse with the Santa Carlos School District out there. That's right right in the Bay Area, just just south of of the big San Francisco area. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a beautiful area. You ever been out there? I have, yeah. It's very nice. The Redwoods are amazing. Yes. Uh, She was... Getting ready to go back to school, right? And she's a school nurse for like eight schools. Okay. Because for some reason now there's one nurse for a multiple amount of schools here. Hmm. Uh, And she was also on her way to catch a plane to Utah to visit her kids. And she gets a text message on her phone saying, Bank of America fraud alert. Did you just attempt a Zelle transaction of $3,500? Please reply yes or no. Hmm. She goes, I didn't attempt a Zelle transaction for $3,500. No. And as soon as she responds, no, her phone rings and the caller ID says Bank of America. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. She answers the phone and a very friendly man says, oh, you didn't authorize this transaction. And she says, absolutely not. And he says, well, get your mobile app open. We're going to get your $3,500 back. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure listeners to this show already know how this how this is going to end for Miss <laughs> Pollock, but uh, it turns out that the man walks her through a series of button presses on the Zelle mobile payment app, and then he puts her on hold. And at this point in time, she says she gets panicked because she had to get onto an airplane, mm-hmm. and her flight was leaving, and something about the call wasn't was starting to not sit right with her. So as she boarded the plane, she checks her Bank of America app on her phone, and sure enough, there's a transfer for $3,500 on on the phone, on the app, rather. Yeah. Uh, So she calls Bank of America immediately from her seat on the plane. And because it's a large global bank, uh, they have fantastic customer service, and someone's right there to talk to her, right? No, of course not. No, she's sitting on hold. (laughs) And she gets put on hold for long enough that the flight attendant comes over and tells her to take, put her phone away because it has to be in airplane mode to take off. Right. Right. Um, She says the flight attendant was not empathetic at all. Um, I can completely relate to that. Yeah. Um, Well, rules are rules. Rules are rules. You can't can't mess with the FAA. Right. right. (laughs) Uh, And chances are once that plane gets to about 10,000 feet, you're going to lose connection anyway. Right. Right. Uh, And that's going to happen fairly quickly. So when she finally lands in Salt Lake City, she gets on the phone with Bank of America again and submits a dispute with with Bank of America. A month later, Bank of America comes back and says, nope, uh, that is not 
uh, we're not going to reimburse that. And the reasoning they gave, Dave, get this, the payee did not approve the return of the money. And their <laughs> recommendation is, we recommend you try to contact the person directly. Okay. So the bank, the B- Bank of America says, we, we talked to the scammers, and they said they're not going to give your money back. We recommend you talk to them. <laughs> Listen, uh, thank you for visiting our police uh, station here. Uh, we think you should go down to the guy who mugged you <laughs> right. and uh, just ask him politely for the money back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well played, Bank of America. Good customer service there. Um, huh. Now, of course, when KGO gets involved, they call Bank of America, and they say that this was fraud and not a legitimate transaction. And the next day, Miss Pollock gets a call, mm. and it says it's coming from Bank of America. And she goes, no, no, you can't <laughs> fool me on this one. Oh, no. Right? But oh. it actually is Bank of America calling her back. Mm-hmm. So, But she does, the right, she does it the right way this time. She calls in to Bank of America and says, I just got a call purporting to be from you. Was it you guys trying to get in touch with me? And they said, yes, we're going to refund your money. Oh, good. Okay, so she did get her money back. She was made whole. Right. Uh, The media had to get involved Mm -hmm. in order for that to happen, though. Yeah. So that's not going to happen for everybody because if the media went around and covered every single scam story that banks didn't make a person whole on, there would be no time for any other news. (laughs) Uh, Additionally, I'm not sure that Bank of America should be the – is the culpable party here. Hmm. Uh, You know, Miss Pollack set up Zelle – to access her Bank of America account, I think Zelle is the more culpable party. Well, my, I, you know, it's funny. I was, I just uh, recently, I set up Zelle on one of my accounts, mm-hmm. um, and as I was doing that, it struck me like, how does Zelle make any money? Because neither the person who sent me money or me receiving money had to pay any fee. So that seemed odd to me. <laughs> is, is there a delay in the money being transferred? No, it's pretty much instantaneous. And it turns out Zelle is owned by a consortium of the big banks. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm guessing, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing the Bank of America is one of the banks that has a an interest in, in yeah. Zelle. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Because hmm. I looked up who owns Zelle this morning when I was researching this. Yeah. And it said it was owned by some corporation. I don't know what, what that corporation is, but I was wondering, I thought it was owned by like Capital One or something, but it isn't. It's owned by something else. And you're saying that's a, a group of banks maybe. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I found out. Uh, I reserve the right to be wrong. But, of course. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to have to try it my because understanding. <laughs> I've been trying to get Venmo to work and it just doesn't work for me. So I'm going to have to switch to Zelle. Yeah. Yeah, this is actually my son sent me some money, and uh, it just came right through. Huh. He sent me a text message. He said, I'm sending you money. And then he sent me the money, and I got a text message from my bank that said, your son just sent you some money. <laughs> I was like, oh. So it shows up directly in your bank account. Yeah, just shows right up. There it is. It's right there, ready. And I didn't have to wait to use it or anything like that. So hmm. uh, I, if with my one single experience so far, I'm a satisfied Zelle customer. Right. <laughs> So take that sample size for what it's worth, which yes. is nothing. And take my sample size on uh, on Venmo for what it's worth, too. It right. doesn't work for me, maybe because I'm an old man and things just don't work for us anymore, Dave. That's right. That's right. <laughs> huh. So b- back to this story, though. Um, right. I-, I mean, I guess, were there any red flags that she could have, that, that should have indicated to her that something was amiss here? Uh that's a good question, Dave. I was thinking about this during the time uh, as I was preparing the story, and this is a good scam, a high-quality scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent out these text messages en masse, I'm sure. Right. Uh, and the fact that she responded no 
to the text message alerted them that she was probably both a Zelle user and had a Bank of America account. Right. Right, because I don't have a Bank of America account or a Zelle account. If I get one of these text messages, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to go, that's a scam. Yeah. Right. But somebody who has both of these, and and there is a probably a fairly high percentage of people, maybe 10% of people, that's a guess, but you know, it doesn't matter how big that percentage is. It's large enough to elicit a, an emotional response. Yeah. You know, you hit the right person and they caught this woman right at the right time as she's getting right. on a plane. Right. The timing was right, too. Timing was perfect for these guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately for Miss Pollock, it wasn't perfect. It was the worst possible time for, to get one of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only way I think that she could have done anything differently was rather than answering the call and following the instructions that somebody uh, somebody – on the on an inbound call tells you to follow is to say you know what I'm going to call you right back at the number I have on file for you mm-hmm. and that's that would have prevented this yeah, um, yeah right. but other than that no I don't know what else could have been done but that's one of the reasons we say be careful these phone numbers can be spoofed very easily yeah somebody could it it can show up like they're calling for Bank of America uh, there there needs to be a technological solution to this implemented fairly soon. And I believe it's possible. I don't know how it would work, but I, I don't have any doubt that it could be done. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is don't give information or do anything based on an inbound call. Mm-hmm. Never do that. That's mm-hmm. just bad practice. Call the person back. It's 100% okay every single time to say, you know what? I'm not comfortable proceeding like this. I'm going to call you back on the number I have on file. For you. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I would say also the someone trying to walk you through something like this on your on your mobile device or your computer, that typically doesn't happen either. Right. You know. Right. So that I, that would be. I don't know if that's a huge red flag, but it certainly would raise my suspicions. Yeah. Well, here's here's the thing, Dave. She had already had her cognitive narrowing enacted. Mm-hmm. Right. She's in a in a in a bad state when they when they call her. And she's already got the the text message that's panicked her. So right. she's not thinking clearly yeah. when this happens. This is how this works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it was very effective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm glad she got her money back. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's a shame that she had to go through, you know, the local TV station to get it done. Mm-hmm. But uh, all's well that ends well, I suppose. And a good lesson for all of us. Indeed. All right. Well, my story this week, uh, I think it's fair to say, is a rather harrowing tale. Oh. Uh, this comes from the San Francisco Chronicle. It's uh, The uh, author of the article is Carolyn Said. And um, the title is, uh, He Held Me Hostage with No Gun But With His Words, The hmm. Phone Scam Gaslighting Therapists. And evidently, this is a common phone scam. Um, it's a story of a woman named Jamie Bardicky. And she is a licensed therapist. That mm-hmm. is her profession. Um, and she got a call on her phone uh, that said it was from the local sheriff's office. Okay. Uh, she answers the phone. And this isn't surprising to her because as a therapist, sometimes she has to deal with legal issues with her clients. So uh, she sees that this call came in. She actually got a message uh, about that message from someone claiming to be from the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office and saying, please return my call. This is about a legal matter. Right. So this all adds up to her, nothing unusual. She calls back. The man identifies himself as uh, Lieutenant Reed from the office and asks her why she failed to testify at a trial 
after having signed a subpoena saying that she would appear Hmm. and that there was an order to arrest her for contempt of court. Now, she was concerned because she has in the past been subpoenaed as an expert witness, Mm -hmm. and she was concerned that this could affect the status of her license, which is her livelihood. Right. So she tells the man on the phone she's never received a subpoena, and he said that she'll have to come to the sheriff's office and sign her name to prove that her signature had been forged, and when that was done, she could be on her way. Um, Now, she Googled the caller's name, And the address that he had given her, and sure enough, there was a police officer with that name, and the address was for the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. So the caller tells her that this is a federal case, and the judge has issued a gag order, so he can't say anything more about it, but that he's been authorized to bring her in, and but that she'll need to post bail with the federal government, and she'll be reimbursed once they prove her signature was forged. And as they're talking, she can hear noises in the background. It sounds like he's at a police station. She hears, you know, chatter in the background, phones ringing, things like that. Right. He tells her it's $6,000 bail. And she says, well, I don't have $6,000 on me. Right. And he says, well, that's okay. I can tell you how to get it, and you'll be reimbursed as soon as you come into the station to uh, identify yourself and verify everything. So she's a little— at this point, she's starting to feel funny about this. And she tells the caller that she wants to call a friend who's a lawyer. Right. And the caller says, I'm sorry, but once you're on the phone with me, you're not allowed to get off because you're considered a flight risk. <laughs> this phone call is being monitored, and you're not allowed to send a text message or make any calls about this case because it's in violation of the gag order. That's a little bit of isolation right there, isn't it? He says, uh, the, the caller says... If she has any interaction with a police officer, she'll be taken into custody and held at least 72 hours before the warrant can be lifted. So we're turning up the heat here, right, Joe? Right, right. She says she's scared. Mm -hmm. She's not sure how she's going to get the money. This seems like an outrageous request. But she also knows that she's had clients who were forced to spend time behind bars because they couldn't post bail. Right. So the man says, if you want to spend 72 hours in jail, that's your choice. Uh, I can stop helping you. Interesting choice of words there. Mm, Yeah, he says that because that is an interesting choice of words. I'm going to hold reservation. I'm going to withhold comment on that until until the end of the story here. Yeah. So the caller tells her to go to a nearby ATM. Uh, Her daily withdrawal limit was only $800. Uh, and he says, well, you can get on your mobile app and up the limit. So she does that, and she's able to withdraw $1,500. Right. The caller tells her to wait for it, Joe. I'm going to guess. Can I guess this one? (laughs) Yes, please. Buy some gift cards. Ding, 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 (laughs) ding, ding, ding. Right. Okay. Tells her to go to a Safeway and buy some prepaid uh, Visa cards with the money. Right. Now, here's an interesting twist that I had not heard of before. He says... She would need to send the cards via designated mailboxes that had arrangements with the Department of Treasury to serve as drop boxes. Interesting. She wouldn't need to put postage on the envelope. Just his name and badge number would suffice. He told her where to find one of the mailboxes. Finally, she found the mailbox. It just looked like a regular old blue postal mailbox to her. But he insisted it was a special box. And he told her before she puts the card in the mailbox... Uh, she had to read him the card number, scratch off the covering on the pin, and read those aloud too, right? 
Okay. So what's going on here? She's basically she's giving him all the information off the cards. Right. And he's the, the cards are are useless after if, that. Right. And and she's just disposing of the evidence. Right. She's just putting the cards in the mailbox. Nothing they're gonna get thrown away. Right. But she's already given him all the information he needs from the cards right. to get the money off of the cards. The entire time, he's just I keeps think, talking. He's le- leading her along. I think that that is to keep her from being able to get the money back, right? Because you're going to need those numbers to get that. Maybe do you need them? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, you. I think you would need the numbers. Yeah, you so, need the cards. That's an interesting thing. It'd be a lot harder for her to get. She can't get the money back if she doesn't know the numbers, right? Because she never wrote them down. Right. Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that angle. Ooh, hmm, interesting. So, uh, again, he is just weaving a spell on this woman. She says, he had a whole rhythm of working me up into a state where I couldn't think straight. Right. Again, the cognitive narrowing. Right. So, we're about two hours into this. After she's received the voicemail, um, he's telling her to go to other stores for more prepaid cards. Right. He's got got a live one, and he's going to continue to exploit it. She visited a 7-Eleven, a Target, a CVS, another Safeway. Um, at her right aid, she says the clerk looked her in the eye and slipped her a pre-printed flyer that said, are you a victim of a scam? Right. And the flyer listed common scams, including one where someone says you have to post bail bond. Right. And she says, that was the closest I came to ending it. Instead, I walked away from the counter and, and told the guy on the phone. The guy on the phone said he could prove he was legit by calling her back from his desk phone. He told her to Google the sheriff's office number, uh-huh. and sure enough, uh, her phone rang a minute later, seemingly from that number. Again, spoofed caller ID. Yep. Right. Uh, and she didn't know that this was possible. She mm-hmm. didn't know that someone could falsify the caller ID. Right. Uh, so the scammer said, said, Jamie, how could I call you from this number if it was a scam? Right. And she says he made her feel guilty for doubting him. Mm. Now, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. She's exhausted. She's bought $6,000 worth of prepaid cards, and she's read the numbers, and she's put them in the mail. Right. Now she, she thinks she has to go to the sheriff's office, and it'll all be over. Right. Here's where it gets horrific. It, it gets worse? Uh, it gets much uh, worse. Okay. The man says, before you get here, I have to warn you, you'll be the subject of a strip search and cavity search when you arrive. Ugh. And we don't have a female officer, so I'll be doing it. Uh, She panics, and she says, no, no, this can't be true. Right. He says, I'll tell you what, I will help you. There's that phrase again. Uh Uh-huh. Instead of an in-person search, she can go to a bathroom at a nearby drugstore and video herself doing the search. Oh. She drives to the CVS. She's sobbing at this point. Um... She begs the manager to let her in the bathroom, saying it was an emergency. Uh, she couldn't get the phone to work, and, and she realized that she couldn't do this herself. She decided instead that she would just let him search her. Hmm. So she drives to the address that he gave her, um, and when she gets there, it's a closed-up office building. There's, there's nothing there. There's no right. one there. And that's when she knew it was a scam. Okay. So nothing, nothing physical happened to this woman? No. Okay. Luckily. Yeah. Yeah, but Ooh. still, she was in the process of trying to videotape herself. So not only does this piece of human garbage yeah. <laughs> scam her out of six six grand, yep. now he wants to humiliate and degrade this woman. Yeah, 
Yeah, and who knows what other extortion that could lead to? Yeah, absolutely. And what else? So, uh, yeah, and and I, I like you know, <laughs> you and I are sitting across the desk from each other, and right. we're both breathless at because I think this is this is a level of of. Um, despicability that I don't think we've dealt with with these sorts of scams before. Right. And yeah. I haven't heard of this sort of thing before. I get people scamming other people out of money, right? Yeah. But then to pile this on top of that, that's, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I know why it angers me. I just can't put it into words right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's Like I said, it's, it is harrowing and horrific. Yeah. Uh, that may be two words for the same thing. I don't know. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh. So she's out six thousand dollars. Yep, she's out six grand. Um, you know, she narrowly escaped this being taken to a whole another level. Right. And this is a smart woman. Right. right? Oh, absolutely. Well educated. You know, uh, this is not someone who understands how people's minds work. Mm -hmm. Right. Who, yeah. Who who better than a therapist to know to be able to sense. If you're being manipulated. Right. And yet, here we are. And Exactly. And this is why one of the things we say is, is don't blame the, the victim here. You right. Know, she, what happened to her was somebody exploited her physiology you know, that we all have, and they, they hit on something with her. They probably went to court records to seize people who had testified before and, and got those court records. Yep. Uh, and then- targeted her specifically with this threat. Yeah. This probably involved a good deal of research. Yeah. It's information that's freely available. I mean, there are a number of red flags that you and I see sitting here at the, at the desk, not on the phone with somebody telling us we're about to be arrested. Right. Um, and I want this is what I wanted to talk about earlier. When the police officer, and this is actually something that police officers do, is they say, I'm trying to help you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're really not trying to help you. I'm not trying to come down on police. It's an investigative technique. Right. They say, I'm trying to help you. And really what they're trying to do is actually build a case. Because remember, anything you say to a law enforcement officer can and will be used against you in court. Right. It'll never be used for you. <laughs> well, yeah. And they're, so they're trying to build rapport. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the fact that the guy says, I I'm trying to help you, you can spend time in jail. Actual cops do that. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, if you if you want to talk to your lawyer, fine. You're going to wait in jail until your lawyer shows up. How long is that going to be? Right. Maybe you we know? can avoid all that. Right. Yeah. Uh, the answer to that question is always, I'll wait in jail till my lawyer shows up. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. Yeah. Um, even, even if you're dealing with, with an actual cop, don't, yeah. you know, you're entitled to remain silent uh, here in America, at least. Yeah. Uh, and in most most of the countries around the world, and you're all always entitled to say, "I want to talk to my lawyer." Yeah, about this, uh, and it it doesn't matter. And even in the worst case situation, yeah, you might you might be put into a local jail for a little while until your lawyer shows up or until a bail bondsman shows up. Um, but and that's another option as well. If you have if if you owe money for bail, you can actually pay a bail bondsman to come in. So in this case, she would have had to post a $6,000 bond. A bail bondsman is going to charge you 600 bucks to post that bond for you. Right. Right. But what would have happened here is uh, the bail bondsman would have said, this is a scam. Hang up the phone. Right. 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 Well, um, so after all this was said and done, 
Um, she called 911. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went to the San Francisco police station. Yeah. The officer filed two reports, one for a financial crime and one for a sexual crime. Good. Okay. Um, they said the calls were from a burner phone, mm-hmm. and she had no recourse on the financial side because she, she had taken the, mon- out she'd and- taken the money out herself. Right. Yeah. But here's a, a, an interesting um, element here. She reached out to some of her local colleagues, and she said about 15 of them said they had been victimized by a similar scam. Really? So it seems as though they are targeting therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, therapists who have probably all testified in court. And it's, yeah, and this article points out, they say, you know, a threat to a therapist's license is a powerful motivator because Absolutely. that's their livelihood. They also said that therapists are committed to trying to understand other people and see their humanity. So they have a lot of empathy. And that's what this bad guy is exploiting, mm-hmm. is that natural empathy yep. that these people have. By And they're sort of pre-filtered into that because you think therapists are going to have uh, a certain amount of emotional intelligence, emotional availability. Right. right. See, now, I've never been called to testify in court or asked to testify on, on cybersecurity matters or other computer science matters. But yep. I know people who have been. Yeah. I don't know how this would impact me. I'd like to think that if someone called me and said, uh, you know, Mr. Kerrigan, you didn't show up for court. We're coming to arrest you. I'd be like, yeah, I'll see you when you get here. <laughs> but um, but I don't know. I, 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 this might work on me. Yeah. This might be something that got me thinking. But I, hopefully, hopefully, future Joe, you should, you should always <laughs> say, I'll call you right back at the sheriff's, at the sheriff's office number. Yeah. Or just hit, just don't, just hang up. And if right. they, because they're going to call back, right? Right. And you could just say, oh, I don't know what happened. The call must have been dropped. Yeah. Or let them go to voicemail while you call your lawyer. You right. Know, yeah. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Just interrupt the call. Uh, good on the Rite Aid employee, by the way, handing her a flyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Everybody that sells gift cards should do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see that the there's increased awareness and effort there on that side of things. Uh, yeah. To I meant, to, meant to call out. I took a picture of at Lowe's a while ago. Yeah. And they had a big big uh, piece of paper up that said, here's how gift card scams work. Mm. So more and more merchants are doing this. Right, right. Yeah, it's in their best interest. And right, it's, it it's is. good for everybody. All right, well, that is my story. We will have a link to all of our stories in this uh, episode's show notes. And of course, we would like to hear from you. If you have a story you would like to share with us, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from our very own Hacking Humans senior producer, Jennifer Iben. Mm. She received an email from somebody calling themselves Henry PayPal. Hmm. Hi, I'm Henry <laughs> PayPal, founder of PayPal. That's why it's called PayPal, because my name is Henry <laughs> PayPal. <laughs> Right. I, I suspect he, he often goes uh, golfing with uh, Betty MasterCard and, uh, and <laughs> Charlie Cal- Visa. Calvert, yeah, Calvert Visa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sure. The Visa brothers. Calvert yeah. and <laughs> Dave, why don't you read this, uh, this email? It's essentially just an invoice, but some of the things are pretty good. Yeah. It says uh, customer name, Jennifer Iben. Payment method, credit card. Order for pickup, order ready Tuesday. Skip the line and simply grab your order from our pickup station or counter inside. And here's the order. One kid's spud, five times $13.99 for a total of $69.95. Includes cheddar jack cheese, chips, sea salt, spud chips. 
One Sprite, four Sprites, four times eleven sixty nine. That's forty six dollars and seventy nine cents. How much, Joe? That must be a heck of a Sprite. <laughs> I'm like wondering how much these people think right. Americans spend on Sprite. I don't know, but uh, that Sprite better have some. THC in it or something. Right. I mean, that's that's the price of a mixed drink here in a lot yeah, of restaurants. Uh, okay. Uh, and there's more. More kids spuds. Uh, four at $13.99 each for a total of $55.96. That includes sour cream, cheddar jack cheese, steamed broccoli. Also, kids unsweetened tea. Six of these at $11.69 each for $70.14. At least their drink prices are consistent, Dave. Uh, here's here's another good one. Chocolate chip cookies. Seven at $11.75 apiece <laughs> for $82.25 of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> it be the, the best dang chocolate chip cookie you've ever had in your life. That's right. So it's a subtotal of $325.09 plus taxes and fees. Grand total, $330. $36.38. Thank you for ordering with PayPal. For order issues, please contact PayPal team at, and there's an 800 number where I wonder what happens when you call that 800 number. Oh, Joe. that's where they, that scam starts, Dave. <laughs> Man. I need to get a burner phone to start calling these people. Yeah. You know, the thing is, too, this would, I could see this working on some people, but also. How hard would it be for them to find out what a Sprite costs? Right. <laughs> or, or maybe that's part of the plan, right? Like like the I, the hope was that Jennifer would see this and go, what idiot thinks I'm going to pay? I'm not buying this. And then calls the number. Right. Right. Uh, and that's, of course, that might be part of the, part of the, the psychological hook here mm-hmm. is that you're buying really expensive food like potatoes and soda and tea are going to cost you $300. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing. I'm sure right. you call that number, they're going to ask you for all your banking information, and that's the ball game. They may even ask <laughs> you to log on to your computer. Yeah, yeah, right. All right, well, that's a good one. And, of course, uh, we thank our dear friend Jen Iben for sending that to us. We do appreciate it. All right, Joe, I recently uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Zach Schuler from Ninjio, and uh, our conversation focuses on the effectiveness of security awareness training. Here's my conversation with Zach Schuler. The cybersecurity awareness industry is a growing industry for, for obvious reasons. There are more companies coming into the industry. Traditionally, cybersecurity awareness training has been a check-the-box exercise for the lion's share of organizations that are out there, kind of regardless of size. And and I think when you get larger in size as an organization, it, it becomes more of a check-the-box exercise. And so as the years have, have rolled on, some of the more sophisticated cybersecurity awareness companies have done a better job of getting people out of the check-the-box mentality and have figured out that they actually need to educate people because humans, depending upon uh, what you read, whether it's Verizon's data uh, data breach uh, investigations report, DBIR, I don't know, I always remember what the I stands for, <laughs> or Ponemon Institute or whatever you read, you know, human error is 85 to 95% of the issue, right? And so if you can attack human error and you can make a big dent on human error, then you've done a great job. 
when I view the industry, I kind of look at it. I, I look at the players in, in, in sort of like two different classifications. First classification, I, would, I, I call them kind of fishing first organization. These are companies who, you know, their clients are companies who believe that security awareness training should be done through simulated phishing, trying to attack the employee. And then, you know, if they fall for the attack, you serve training up after the attack that they've fallen for, hopefully that's semi-relevant to the attack. More recently, there have been organizations that have entered the market. You know, we were, I'd like to call us uh, one of the first, if not the first. I think I think we got into micro-learning and, you know, micro-learning through storytelling in the cybersecurity awareness space. First, you know, I call us and, and a few others uh, content-first companies. And so instead of saying, all right, we are going to test our people and then train them based on the results of the test. There's an opposite kind of philosophy. And that is like you would walking into your first day of university, you would say, we are going to train people before we give them the test, right? And so that's kind of, that's kind of our theory is that we want to give people really good, memorable training that they can retain and then you fish them after the fact and, you know, you see how, how well they do. And that can be measured in, in several different ways. So that's kind of my, my purview of, you know, how the industry sits today. And in terms of the customers who are purchasing these, these various types of security awareness training programs, how are they measuring success within their own organizations? How do they know that the investment they're making here is making a difference? So security awareness is one of those really interesting things, right? If you dump $100,000 into a marketing channel and that $100,000 produces a $500,000 return, it's really easy to measure ROI or, or ROIC. With respect to security awareness, you have to measure what is the decrease in risk that we have created through our security awareness program. And so the traditional measures for that, especially in the, the phishing first kind of organizations, the traditional measures have been, we launch a simulated phishing attack and how many people take the bait? And um, we did a study on that a couple of years ago with one of our clients who was um, considered by DHS, a critical infrastructure company. Long story short, they did a phishing attack on them. This organization being a client of ours for four years, and one out of 600 people that were targeted in the attack took the bait. We felt really good about that. And, you know, the organization did as well. And so traditionally, that's been a form of measurement. I think that still should be counted as a form of measurement, but not necessarily the primary form of measurement. And the reason is, it's a reactive measurement. And so you cannot make the assumption that if somebody didn't fall for the attack, maybe they never saw it. Maybe it was an email that came through and it's sitting at the bottom of their inbox somewhere and they've, they haven't seen it. I mean, mm. I'm sure you've gotten on the phone with lots of people and they've got, you know, 7,028 messages that are unread. <laughs> they never fell for the phishing attack because they never got it in the first place, right? Right, right. And so, you know, you can't guarantee that that, it gets, that, that attack gets set right in front of their plate and that they have the option to take a bite or not. I still think it's a valid measurement because it does give you an idea. It can spot trends and stuff like that. But the new world of thinking is 
how do we measure security awareness on a proactive basis instead of a reactive basis? Hmm. And so from that perspective, one of the things that we are paying now a lot of attention to is how many people report phishing attacks, right? Because, you know, over the course of the day, whether they're simulated or not, you're going to get them, you're going to see them. And if you get an employee who is consistently reporting legitimate phishing attacks and you start to create a culture of reporting phishing attacks, you're really showing a proactive behavior. I think that's a leading indicator on how pervasive has security awareness culture become inbred into the organization. And so, you know, we like to look at proactive measurements like that. Another one that has been done in the past for measuring the success of a program is what has the engagement been in the training, right? And so, you know, we're, we're big on engagement. We want to make sure that every single person at every single organization that we serve is watching every single episode that we release. We release a new episode every month. We want every employee watching those episodes, getting to the end. They're three to four minutes long, getting to the end, completing a one-question, multiple-choice, multiple-answer quiz, and moving on with their day and hopefully retaining that information, right? So that's a good measurement. Companies, it's kind of a 50-50 split. Some organizations make that training mandatory. In other organizations, they might have their one-hour internally produced death by PowerPoint security (laughs) awareness training made mandatory. And then the voluntary training is NINJIO on a monthly basis. So when that's the case, that could actually be pretty critical because if you are being served up NINJIO on a voluntary basis, but you're still engaging and you're still taking in the training, that is a phenomenal proactive measurement to see who is actually self-motivated on a voluntary basis to want to learn more about how to protect themselves and how to protect their organization. If Ninjio has been made mandatory and it's, it's either getting rolled out through our cloud-based LMS or through a client's learning management system or some other delivery mechanism, but then they put up optional episodes maybe up on Slack, maybe in, in stream, or maybe on their, you know, security on their SharePoint portal. There's, these are the, you know, optional episodes that you can watch to learn more. If you're measuring how many people are actually going out and they, you know, you meet the learner where they are, right? So they're on Slack, they see an episode come through and you can measure how many people are watching that on a voluntary basis. That is another amazing indicator of how security awareness culture has ingrained itself into the organization. You know, I, I've seen a number of particularly security professionals sort of turn their nose up at the whole idea of security awareness training. They make the point that this shouldn't be necessary, that if the security pros are doing their job, then the training would be irrelevant. How do you respond to that attitude? It's an outdated attitude. Security awareness is everybody's responsibility. I don't care how good your secure email gateway software is. I don't care what blinking lights you have in your data center or what blinking lights you've outsourced to another organization that is supposed to, quote unquote, keep your organization secure. At the end of the day, as quickly as technology companies innovate, hackers are innovating just as quickly, if not more quickly. 
So what does that mean? It means that attacks are going to come across your desk, either as phishing attacks, as smishing attacks, as watering hole attacks, as SMS hijacking attacks. You're, you're going to see them now. And the security department is not going to be able to stop everything, right? They do a great job in you know stopping perhaps 99% of the attacks that come through. But I hate to make the analogy. It's like, it's like the analogy of a terrorist, right? It only takes one. And that's, that's the reality today is that it, it only takes one. And for anybody that, you know, kind of puts their nose up at security awareness training, you know, as an effective tool in keeping an organization more secure, they're, they're just not living in reality today. Now, I would say either that's the case or their past experience with security awareness training, maybe with, you know, an older school provider uh, with an older mentality, maybe they just haven't seen any actual results. And, and so, you know, that could be their reason for, for, you know, kind of saying, yeah, it's, it's not worth the money. Right. Cause they've had, they, they haven't had positive experiences. Yeah. I, I sort of liken it to if you're a, a shopkeeper or, you, you know, you have a, a small business and a, even just a handful of employees that, it's everyone's responsibility to look after the security of the shop. You know, you can't, if someone walks in the door and starts taking merchandise out the door, it, everyone needs to to help put a stop to that. It's not to say that, you know, every employee is going to be the one who confronts that person, but everyone needs to be aware, tuned in and, and on board with that effort. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't be more right about that. You know, you, you look at, you know, say, uh, you know, Target, for example, the store. Target has a loss prevention department. They have people that are walking around watching for people shoplifting. Maybe they aren't anymore because shoplifting's okay now. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> your average employee, you're exactly right. The average employee sees something. We have, a, we have a saying, see something, do something. If the average employee sees something, maybe they don't, like you said, they don't confront the person, but they certainly pick up the phone and call security. Right. And say, hey, I just saw this person shoplifting. Yes, it's everybody's responsibility. You can't just rely, Target cannot just rely on their LPD department to protect, you know, merchandise going out the door and pay for it. All right, Joe, what do you think? Great interview, Dave. I like I like a lot of things Zach had to say. Uh, number one, he starts talking about larger enterprises uh, and for these larger enterprises, security awareness becomes a check-the-box activity. Yeah. Um, I guess checking the box is better than not checking the box. But you should probably take it more seriously because, as he points out, human error is 85 to 95% of the problem. Hmm. He talks about having two paradigms, the first being train, then test, and then the other one being test, then train. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the Zach, uh, the model that Zach's company does with, with train first, then test – but it doesn't let you get a baseline that test first, then train would let you collect. I'd like to be tested out of the training if possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? That's another option, right? <laughs> right, right. Dave doesn't fall for these. Yeah, if, you, if I can pass the test, don't make me sit through the 20 minutes of, uh, right. of, of training, right? <laughs> Zach makes a great point about metrics here. You really can't tell when someone didn't fall for a phishing attack because – they may have missed might, may have missed the email. Yeah, yeah I, I was just traveling, and I came back to five hundred 
emails in my inbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to whoever signed me up for all those mailing lists, by the way. <laughs> uh, but if I got a phishing email in the past week or so, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Also, some of the metrics you're looking for are kind of difficult to gather because you're talking about the absence of an outcome. Right. That's what security awareness is there to prevent. Yeah. Uh, so I really like the things that Zach has done here to quantify changes in behavior, right? Mm. He, he comes at it from a different angle by a- measuring actual events that you can count, like how many people re- are reporting phishing emails. Mm-hmm. An increase in that would indicate that your security awareness program is working or how many people are voluntarily watching the training materials. Like, like you said earlier, you don't want to watch them, but if, if you can actually create something that's enjoyable to watch, maybe you will watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Make them entertaining, which, you know, to, to, I mean, lots of, we're at that point now where there right. are a lot of entertaining ones out there. Right. So that's definitely a good development. It is. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Zach makes a big point about this. And I want to also focus on this point as well. Uh, the security awareness isn't necessary if the cybersecurity folks are doing a good job, that, that mindset, mm-hmm. you know, that we really don't need security awareness as long as the cybersecurity stuff is is good. Zach said that's an outdated ad- attitude. I'm going to go a little bit further on this and say it's a dangerous attitude. Hmm. Uh, not only is it outdated, but it's dangerous. There has never been in human history a perfectly secure system. Yeah. And the best systems are going to fail at some point in time, and you need to train your people to be ready to be the last line of defense against that failure. Uh, additionally, as our standard tools like firewalls and spam filters and everything gets better, the bad guys are just going to straight up attack the people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we talk about here on this show every week Yeah, is the straight up attack on the people. And the best way to protect those people is with security awareness training. This is not something that you can just ignore or, or rely solely on uh, your cybersecurity program to, to help you with. You're going to need security awareness training for your people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you need both. You can't. Right. You, yeah. The, the, the more you have of both, you know, in general, the better off you're going to be. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Zach Schuler from Ninjio for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 